Doctor is today's cultural note brought to you by WOI and Channel 9. We have tonight for you a three-star film and one that I'm sure that all of you will enjoy on the million-dollar movie on Channel 9 entitled Frankenstein 1970, and it's a dilly, friends. Baron von Frankenstein is beginning to regret his decision to allow a television troupe to film a show at his castle. So he sneaks off into his little laboratory and creates a monster, starring Boris Karloff, Tom Duggan, and 90 long minutes. All right, let's go. All together, gang, let's go. Oh. I'm the sheep of Araby. Your love belongs to me. At night when you're asleep. <laughs> Into your tent, I'll creep. Gee, I'm sorry I missed that. When was that on? Frankenstein, 1970. That that should be put into our giant trivia file. You know that that film cost us, uh, it's of course one of the million dollar movies, that film cost us over $7 to rent for a 90-day period. It was a, it was a, but a gasser all the way. Speaking of gassers, friends, tonight, once again, we salute the Englishman, wherever he is. Thank will always be of London tried to fly yesterday and once again it didn't work. He climbed to the parapet of the Hammersmith Bridge wearing a black sweater, blue swim trunks and cotton wings stretched on a cane framework. The River Thames flowed filthily below. I think he's an idiot said Partridge's trainer, Tony Goyen, 22. I feel akin to the birds, said Partridge, who is 21. You can see why I am called Partridge, and my first name is Donald, same as the well-known duck. His wings, he said, were constructed on principles first expounded by Leonardo da Vinci, who didn't fly either. Partridge gave a couple of flaps and then took the plunge. He soared a few feet, and then the wings collapsed, and down he went into the river. Friends dragged him out. His wings are ruined, he said. I've spent all my money on them. I haven't any girlfriends. They all get fed up with me because of my hobby. Next time, I shall make a pair of wings with a 30-foot span and tie balloons to my feet. Then he went to have his stomach pumped. A routine for anyone who falls in the Thames. Hey, God, an Englishman. Next time, 30-foot wings. I'll have balloons tied to my feet. One with Hammersmith. 
cartridge. There's a bit more of iron fiber tissue. Now, tonight's sporting note. Fox hunting, one of Britain's most cherished aristocratic traditions, has survived many threats in his centuries of existence. When railroads first came to England, hunt masters predicted darkly that good hunt country would soon be impossible to find. They were similarly worried about motor roads and then finally the breakup of huge landed estates. But somehow, thank God, hunting survived, complete with scarlet coats, silver horns, and shouts of Tally-ho! It will probably also survive the ghastly setback it suffered last Wednesday, which tonight we take great regret in reporting to you. The Honorable Duke of Beaufort, whose family is famous in hunting annals and who bears the honorary title of Master of the Queen's Horse, turned out with a swarm of riders and a score of hounds to chase a fox over his 40,000-acre estate. Big as it is, the estate was not big enough, for the fox escaped into 60 acres rented by farmer Colin Robertson, who thinks fox hunting is cruel to animals. As the chase neared his freshly planted pasture, Robinson appeared on the scene with a shotgun. The fox raced into the pasture, followed first by the hounds, second by Major Gerald Grundy, joint master of the hunt, and last by the Duke himself. Robertson's shotgun boomed. By God, sir, you'll swing for this, bellowed the Major, and retreated with the Duke. Robertson said he shot the fox, quote, to put it out of its misery. Told the Duke for fun that he'd shot a hound and then led Beaufort's horse off of his land. The Duke said, through a spokesman, that Robertson shot the fox, but the hunters left voluntarily. Various other versions were that the fox escaped and that Robertson threatened to shoot the Duke, who was a tight-lipped host to Queen Elizabeth later in the day. He refused like a gentleman to comment. Major Grundy was too shaken to tell his story. By God, sir, it was all too awful, his wife explained. It was too awful for him to talk about. And so tonight, we salute the Duke of Popeye. By God, that was really good. Sure to tune in tomorrow at the same time on the third program, BBC's Overseas Service, when once again we salute stalwart Englishmen and England wherever they might be. We'll fight them from the hedgerows. We'll fight them from the beaches. Blood, sweat, and tears. for the Manchester Light Cavalry Haydn String Quartet, which follows in a few moments. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and so, and so once again, we're faced with, oh, speaking of being faced with uh, the realities of uh, the existence that we find ourselves tangled in, 
You know, I, I, I understand. I, the other day, inadvertently, I'm tuning across the television set dial there, you know, and I'm just fiddling with it and back and forth. Have you ever done any DXing on television? Don't you know what DXing means? Well, DXing means about, uh, oh, I'd say about 1 o'clock in the morning when, when the, a lot of the half-baked local channels, uh, led by guess you know which one, have left the air when uh, <laughs> a lot of the half-baked channels and the, the old movies have finally unwound and the prayers for the day have finally been offered on very shaky kinescope and, and very creaky film. You know, I'll never forget one day when, when uh, I'm, I'm watching one of, one of the greatest moments of uh, television. My television viewing history had one of the great moments of my history was one time I'm watching... And, you know, they, they finish this old film and they put the Mr. Clean commercial on the last one of the day. They throw in a couple of quick commercials for cigarettes and the beer commercial comes out. A lot of little squeaky commercials that were forgotten during the day they throw in at the end there. Then then on comes the, uh, the you know, little thing they have, the little three-minute prayer for the end. The guy comes on and it's this, it's this minister, very a very sincere-looking minister. And... Uh, there's a brief moment of, uh, of organ music before he comes on. This is now the prayer for the day. And he comes on. He looks. He's one of those kinds, you know, you can see his eyes are sort of moving back and forth. They have the idiot cards up back of them. It's something, something, to, uh, something is very, very somehow a little depressing to see a minister reading idiot cards while giving benediction. That, that kind of throws me somehow. At the, I, I don't know, you know, I, I see the fine hand of a bad copywriter working there, and he's trying to keep up with the teleprompter, and all the while keep within the 65 seconds allotted him, and at the same time bless the entire universe. Well, it's very hard to do, and I... I'm, I'm watching him, you see, with the, with the practiced eye of an, of an unsuccessful fellow performer. And he starts out, and he had one of those fruity voices, you know, that kind of boom up, good evening, friends, uh, that kind of thing, good evening, friends, it is the end of a long and we hope a happy day for you. But for just a moment at this end of day, and his eyes are going back and forth, at the end of day, let us pause to consider those who are less fortunate than we are. And for just a moment, let us offer a silent prayer. And his silent prayer consisted of talking faster. Well, I guess we were all supposed to be silent. And he said, let us now offer a silent prayer. Oh, we say unto you. And he starts out, and then they lost the sound. And he kept going. His mouth kept going, and his eyes kept going back and forth. And it was the most eerie thing. His, his mouth, you can't see me, but my mouth is going... And his eyes kept popping back and forth. And he was offering the silentest prayer that I have ever seen on Channel Whoopi. And he went on and on and on. And, and, and then he, he, uh, he, he, the, the sound came on just one brief spurt. The engineer, of course, I can see I could, immediately. All the engineers are obviously, I can see them in the control room running around trying to get the sound. They got it for one brief spurt and one word came out. And it is a word that is often used around the bowling alley uh, in vain just came out loud, and then it went off again. It sounded like he was swearing, friend, just after terrible, bah, bah. He kept going like that, yes. And then he says, <laughs> I, could, I could see him winding up because his mouth was going faster. Obviously, they were giving him the wind-up signal in the background, and his eyes were going back and forth. And then on came the silent, they, they, they dollied over, you know, you could see the big stained glass window. And then just at the end, da, 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 da. That was the prayer for tonight. And uh, somehow I like the idea of a gigantic technical bollocks uh, 
wreaking havoc with sending a silent prayer upwards, spiraling to the heavens. Now, does a prayer offered where the sound is lost through a technical louse-up, does a pra- I wonder if God counts a prayer like that, do you think? I mean, I think, uh, you're, you're in the union, Eddie, you're in the engineer's union. Is there anything that crosses up on that? Anything like that? Do you have to write a failure report on that missed prayer? <laughs> Speaking of failures, this is WOR AM and FM New York. And uh, we'll be here. Uh, you know, it's fi- Oh, yes, uh, yes, we have a, uh, on the subject of that, we have with us Mandarin House tonight. And uh, if, uh, if you are out of town, I'm going to direct this specifically to people who get lost in this, this fantastic beehive here. If you're coming from out of town and you, you come in on the weekend or something and you'd like to make the New York scene and you'd like to get away from the tourist world for a few moments and really experience something that you will not find back home in good old friendly Trenton, I would like to suggest you try the Mandarin House, a superb, really a superb Mandarin well, it's Chinese food, but it's Mandarin Chinese food, which is very different from Cantonese food, which is what generally we are accustomed to. Now, Mandarin House, which is and has been for years, you know that I was a, I was a customer of, of the Mandarin House for five years before they came on the show. And it is one of my favorite restaurants, and I've taken hundreds of people there over the years. It's down on 13th Street between 6th and 7th in the heart of the village, a beautiful neighborhood. It's Mandarin House. They have a bar. They're open all weekend, and they're open until after the theater. Superb Mandarin Chinese food. You got it? 13th Street between 6th and 7th. Mandarin House. Okay. Oh, oh speaking of sinister ch- orientals, while we're on the subject of the sinister oriental, uh, while I was up in Maine, for the benefit of those of you who wondered what happened, I spent a couple of weeks up in Maine recently. And uh, when I was up in Maine... About the thir- I was in this in, uh, on this lake inland, you see, and way way uh, way off back in the in the center of Maine, uh, completely removed from the chic coastal areas, and I'm back there in the bucolic boondocks, knee deep in 1937 Chevrolets and uh, so on. And about the third day I'm there, I decided, well, actually the second day I'm there, I decided I was not going to shave. I said, I'm not going to shave for two, I'm back here in the woods, I am fishing for, for uh, landlocked salmon, and I'm not going to shave. Well, all right, uh, the first two or three days, I'm feeling real scrongy. You begin to feel real itchy, and the sun is beating down, and I'm out there in the boat, and the water is all around me, and I'm scratching and itching, and I'm beginning to peel. The top of my head is peeling, and my feet are peeling, and and uh, and, uh, and the, uh, the landlocked salmon are ignoring me. And so I'm, I'm getting this thing, you know, and about the end of the week, it, it came Sunday... And I looked in the mirror. There were one of the little mirrors tacked on the side of the wall of the cabin, the rustic cabin. And I look in there, and there is this dark, scrungy-looking bush with a pair of beady eyes peering out of it. So I grab my razor, and I start to go, and then, I, and then it suddenly hit me. I said, I'm just going to play around here a little bit. So I start to, I start to trim it, and I'm having fun. You know, I'm, I'm all way up there, and nobody's around. So I trim and trim, and by George, I had an embryonic beard. An embryonic beard. I look, I look myself in the eye there, and I look, oh, why? All of a sudden, my jaw is squarer, and suddenly I'm standing straight. Well, by the end of the second week, I had a genuine beard. And, uh, 
And contrary to, uh, for, for some reason or other, there's been a lot of rumors around. I keep getting letters from people saying that I have, a, I have never had this beard. I've never had a beard except a long time ago when I was in the Army very briefly, and it grew out wildly red for some reason or other. Maybe it was just the mood of the times, but it was a red beard, and it was a very short one. And the commanding general of that command came around one day and made everybody shave off his beard, including the CO. So ever since that time, I've been a little nervous about not shaving. Uh, what do you mean? Well, oh, yes, you get very nervous about not shaving. Once, once you've uh, had the CO bellow in your ear about it, you, you get very nervous. So I've been a shaver ever since. Well, I came back. I drove all the way back to, to New York, and I says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sneak into the sales department there, and they'll think I'm a very important client with a spirit. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and the first thing that developed was nobody knew me. Absolutely nobody knew me. I came around there, and I have this sinister beard, and beginning, I think I'm going to do about three programs on what happens when you radically change your appearance. Radically change your appearance. You know, there's only two ways a guy can go with a beard. You are either considered a beat when you have a beard. You get that. Either that, or you go superlatively first class. And there is no middle ground. You are either Commander Whitehead or you are living on the underbelly of McDougal Street. There's no in-between. That's the truth. There's no in-between. And so if you have a beard and you, you, know, you trim it real nice and you wear a suit and a tie, let me tell you, I went into this garage where I keep this little scooter I've got. I've got a little scooter, see, that has about a one-tenth of a horsepower. This little, this little motorcycle, and, I, and I've been keeping it there for a long time, and I go into this guy's garage. It's one of these garages, you know, with about nine levels, Ed, and they've known me for a long time. I'm the guy that, you know, the, the, the cheapie that comes in with the old rotten scooter and stuff. So I have a suit on. Yeah, I have a suit, and I'm bronzed, you see, from Maine. And I walk into this place, and the attendant, who has been, you know, he's been kicking at me and yelling and sticking his hand out for tips now for five years, and... I walk in there, and he looks very, very respectfully at me. He says, oh, yes, yes, sir, you're, you're the Mercedes. He turns and starts to walk away. He's going upstairs to get the Mercedes. And I say, hey, no, I'm the scooter. And he turns around and I said, what? <laughs> I, I became, for that one instant, the Mercedes man. It's just curiously refreshing, actually. <laughs> Effervescence with tiny pinpoint bubbles, you will find it's curiously refreshing. <laughs> well, uh, I must point out that my beard is is a is a is a combination between a junior Monty Woolley and uh, Fu Manchu. With with at one at one moment and the and the next yes give me the sinister oriental music there one moment and the next it, it varies back and forth now first one give me this give me give me the English music first see at one at, seriously I'm telling you what a beard does at one moment depending on the kind of shirt you're wearing and how the wind is blowing and whether you've had uh, radishes for lunch uh, all these things play a part on one moment you either become sort of parliamentary. I walk into Needick, see? I say, have an orange drink, please. An orange squeeze. I'll have a, I'll have a, a, a worst, please. A sausage. A sausage on the bun. What do you call them? A hot dog, I believe? Oh, very good. Curiously refreshing. <laughs> And then if the wind is blowing in the right direction, and I have had, I've had radishes for lunch, and a couple of chicks have ogled me uh, in the right way, 
and things have gone well at the newsstand. Then the other thing. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Boys to know. Sinister at Dr. Fumancho. High cheekbones, aquiline cat-like eyes. Heading out from behind a long, sensual oriental beard. Now that he incarnate evil.
uh, everybody who's going to be in it just, uh, let's say, ties a, ties a towel around his left foot or something. Anyway, a guy walks out and out of the hot dog joint down there at uh, Jones Beach, about 3.30, stands there for a minute, looks out, at, out to sea, and then lays down. Or do you prefer lies down? He, he flattens himself on the ground there, see? He just lays down there in the sand looking out to sea. Then somebody comes along and uh, lies down next to him. And then uh, somebody comes along and lies down next to that one. And uh, anybody, it doesn't make it ever dogs, chicks, anything. And then somebody comes along and lies down next to them. And then pretty soon we've got about 27 people all lying down there looking out to sea. Then someone comes along and uh, neatly puts himself right on top of the end one, uh, just a little bit in. Well, by 4 o'clock, we would have a human pyramid, if we worked at it, that would, could be at least 7,000 people high. Just reaching up to the sky, 35 stories up there, you know. Life magazine would be on hand to cover it. <laughs> and we all, we all have to face out to sea, see. Uh, we just have to face out to sea. And, and uh, once in a while, somebody says, you know, it's a nice day. So we have to say things like that. We have to say things like, uh, gee, do you notice uh, how blue the sky is today? Things like, uh, gee, it was a nice drive out, wasn't it? Someone says to somebody way down four, four or five floors below him, you know. And I think that this would be a good summer for it. I really do. Last summer it was a little too early in man's uh, trek towards whatever the devil he's trekking toward. And I, I, I really seriously would like, to, would like to, uh, to do this. I think a week from tomorrow, a week from Sunday would do it. Don't you think so? Very good. Very good. I'll bring my nose flute. I haven't blown my nose flute. Ever since Martha Dean stole my nose flute, if, if anybody, if any of you out there have a spare nose flute around, please send it to me, and I'll start blowing again. But, you know, this, this chick, uh, just the way it is around here, it's the sneaky people. But uh, I, I, uh, I think it's, it's time now to celebrate summer madness and some of the things upon which our civilization is based. And one of the things our civilization is based is a complete dependence on worship of and, and in many ways, like all, good, uh, like all good gods, a fear of the machine. I mean, there's no question about that. And uh, at no time of the year does this become more evident than in the summertime, when man himself, I mean, just the average lout, really begins to tangle with the machine. Generally, he does not do it in the, in the wintertime. No, no, no. Uh, if you have ever stood out, say, on uh, mm, Northern Boulevard... I'd say, uh, oh, uh, Queens Highway, uh, say about uh, 9 o'clock on a Sunday night, and watch them bumper to bumper, <laughs> heard the muttered imprecations. If you've ever tried to get through the Lincoln Tunnel, say about, uh, oh, I'd say 5.30 on a good Friday night, going towards Jersey, you'd know about man's battle with the machine. And you understand it. Well, I... I, I I would like to tell a story that I've kind of hesitated telling because it touches on some very basic religious concepts that all of us hold in this world of the machine. But when I was a kid, I was a young neophyte at the altar of the machine. Oh, yes, all of us begin very early. Uh, I was beginning to form the concepts and the precepts and the little sneaky things that flit back and forth in that dark, long... That, that twisting Stygian tunnel of the mind, which will never be explained to any of us, no matter how many tracks you read or give out or listen to or 
hand back and forth or write on the walls. It's always there and uh, totally mysterious. I'm this kid, see. I'm about 16. In fact, I am 16. And in the state of Indiana, one can obtain a full driver's license at the age of 16. And I, like most kids out in the Midwest, had learned to drive a couple of years before, driving in country where there is great stretches of open highway and large areas of of real estate and cornfields and melon fields. Some, oh, hey, will you please remind me, one of you, on a good hot day, I would like to do a story about a cantaloupe field in 105 degrees uh, within spitting distance of the Wabash River in Indiana. Uh, I don't know whether any of you have spent much time in a cantaloupe field or near an onion set or knee-deep in tomato plants in Indiana with the sun beating down and the fertilizer rising and the poison sumac on all hands and the wrists and the ankles and and the, the hum of the quiet mosquito. Uh, I, I, you just, just put that down. I'll, I'll, I'll do that story. But this is very closely connected with that same problem. I'm a kid, see, and for a long time I have been... That, that wild excitement of learning to drive, of, of sitting in the back seat and watching your old man shift gears, uh, make the signals. To, do you remember the excitement of, of watching that? Today, apparently, kids just automatically drive because there's nothing to driving. Uh, the automatic transmission cars, I mean, uh, this is a, this is a, a, totally, a, a totally impersonal experience. But driving an automobile that fought you, and at the same time, you could feel you could you could feel under your hand it was a very different thing. It was it was it was very akin to to learning to ride a horse. And each automobile had a completely distinctive feel under you as you drove it. Uh, it and you you if you if you learned to drive a car that had a bad shimmy, for example, you could correct for the shimmy. You could you could correct for all kinds of things, and and it was a it was a technique and a feeling and a and a life, uh, a life far removed from renting a car from Kinney and getting the same car, you know the millions of cars that everybody's all used today. Cars are roughly as uh, I'd say roughly as charming and as personal as beer cans. These automobiles that are built today, and this is not a this is not a, a peon a, a hymn to the old. There's nothing at all like it. Nothing to do with nostalgia. It's just a different attitude that the automobile is totally disposable now. And, and in fact, out on the West Coast, they already have all night automobile uh, stores. Where if at four o'clock in the morning, like if at four in the morning here, you know, you want a beer, you can rush out and buy a beer. There's an all night deli. You buy a beer, the can of beer, and you just whip off the top and down it goes. Well, if at four o'clock in the morning, you're driving your, your 61 whoopie mobile and you say, oh, come on, Madge, let's get a car. Let's get another car. You whip into this place, friendly friends, and 30 seconds later, you're out driving a new 64 Zowie, you know? And, and you can drive maybe 40 or 50 feet, and you say, oh, no, come on, I don't like this one. You drive into another one. You just dispose of them. It's disposable automobiles. Well, there was a day, however, when it wasn't quite that way. And I'm a kid. And uh, I, I have been looking at all the cars that were around. And I had formed some very definite opinions on the kind of car that I want. I had learned to drive on a, on a Pontiac straight eight, 
uh, with a big uh, with a big Indian chief, you know, hanging on that on that hood, the long, thin, narrow, tapered hood. Gee, that was a beautiful car. Uh, it was it was a used car. My father was a used car man, but this car was in magnificent condition, and it was a Pontiac Straight Eight with that big trunk in the back, a 1937 Pontiac that I learned to drive on. Well, I, I had been that course was way out of my class, and and I had been looking around and I had been saving money. I'd worked at the piano factory a while, and I'd I'd worked down at the mill a while in the summer, and I kept, kept putting a couple of bucks aside. Till finally, I had I had gotten myself sixty dollars. That was the, the the most I could spend. Now, for sixty bucks, you could get a pretty good used car, at least of the kind that I wanted. And so one Saturday afternoon, I went up and down Stony Island, which is kind of the used car center of the whole universe, Stony Island and Chicago. They have mile after mile after mile after mile. Now, used car places in those days, as you remember, Ed, were very different than today. Now, today, there will be 45 cars looking exactly alike, all lined up. Some are pink, some are yellow, some are totally chrome, some are pastel gray. But, but in those days, you could find everything on used car lots, and they were all completely distinct, and every car within a certain make was distinctive from the other car within that make. And so you had to look very carefully. It was like picking a horse. You know, you could, you could, there, there are all kinds of quarter horses, and you can get a bad one, you can get a good one, you can get an excitable one, you can get, you can get a fast one, you can get a slow one, you can get a fat one, you can get an angry one, but there are all kinds. Well, that's the way it was with used cars within any given type of make. Well, this Saturday, I went down, there were about four kids, and I took my old man along, and we we're going to make the big deal. And I knew exactly what I wanted. I knew the kind of car I wanted. But I wasn't, you know, I was, well, I was open, you see, I was open. I was willing to listen to argument. If something great turned up, I would go for it. Well, we went to used car lots one after the other, and I spotted about seven different, different models, seven different examples of the kind I wanted. And I'll tell you the car that I wanted. I saw one on an old television show the other night. In fact, I saw one on the streets of New York the other day that was completely restored, a beautiful little automobile. It was a 1933 Ford V8 Roadster. Have you, do you recall the 1933 Ford V8 Roadster? Which uh, I was looking for a used one, you see. And finally, on Stony Island, at somewhere in the 70s someplace, I, I found this little Ford. It was black. Absolutely jet, coal black. It had yellow wire wheels. And it had a beautiful top. It had leather upholstery. But more important than that, I got in, I fooled around, opened up the hood, and I, I, I looked at the engine. We, we, we fooled with... But in those days, tire kicking, I mean, it was... You went far beyond tire kicking. I listened to the valves and the whole business and the bearings. And I watched that old oil pressure gauge, and I drove it around the block, and I tried the kingpins and the whole business. It was $65, which was a considerable fortune. Well, I came back, and I went down to the next lot, and that little car kept hanging in my mind. I went back and back and back, and we walked all over, and there was a, there was a little four-cylinder Plymouth that looked good, and we thought about that and back. And finally, I said, well, let me think about this. I went back to the guy, and he says, well, look, Mac, I mean, this, this kind of a car doesn't hang around here long. I mean, you either do or you don't, you know. There's the pot. You either do or you don't. Well, I looked at him. He looked at me. And I knew that I had to do it.
I said, okay. I reached into my hip pocket. I peeled off 60 bucks. I said, here is $60. So the price is 65 Well, that's all I got. But he saw that cash. That okay. But there ain't no guarantee. I said, all right, I can take care of it. I gave him the 60 bucks, put my old man's plates on the back of this thing. He signed the title over to me, marked it paid, and I drove down the street in Elizabeth. Well, now it begins. From that minute on, I had an, uh, uh, I had a love, I had a, I had a faith. I had a love, I had a faith. I had an image, I had a dream. I had an existence. I had a castle. I had uh, a cross on my back. I had all of it, you see. And every available moment was spent working on this car, and it was just magnificent. Well, one night, this is a job that I had been thinking now for about, you know, all through the last couple of weeks of school. I'm thinking I'm going to do this job, and I've been thinking and thinking. I go down to Monkey Wards, and I get myself some valve, uh, some valve grinding compound, Ed, I go down to Monkey Wards, and of course I've got the I've got the tech manual on this 33 Ford. I know all the clearances and the whole bit, you see. And so finally, school is out, and I'm circling around the car for weeks because this is going to be a big job. I'm circling around it, you know. I'm fooling with little things here and there. I'm working with the upholstery, and once in a while I I tighten the muffler, and occasionally I tighten the fan belt, little things because I'm I'm working in, you see. I'm working in for the big job. Well, I finally decided to take the bull by the horns. And one Saturday morning, I drove the car into our little wooden garage, took the hood off the, off the Ford, and I took down from the, the big shelf, I took my old man's tool case, laid it down on the floor, rolled up my sleeves, spit on my hands, and began to take the head bolts off. I am about to grind the valves. Now, I don't know whether you have ever ground the valves on a 1933 Ford or ground the valves, for that matter, on any automobile by hand using valve grinding compound, <laughs> using, using the hand technique, grinding, grinding, trying to get those valve springs out, trying to line it up. Well, I started the work about 11 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, and it got hotter and hotter. It was a little wooden garage with a tar paper roof. And inside there were a couple of tires hanging on the wooden walls, you know, and a couple of old cans of chrome polish and uh, some old fan belts. And my old man had always, he'd always tacked up his old license plates on the back of the garage. You know, there were a bunch of old license plates, a couple of old brooms, a lot of grease on the floor, and that, that, that smell of old concrete and old wood and old axle droppings. You know, this, the smell of grease and the smell of gasoline, the smell of, of vulcanized rubber the smell of old inner tubes and old gloves and stuff. Well, I'm working in there, and it is getting hotter and hotter. But as I worked, that, that peculiar religious intensity, I, I, I know what, what religious intensity is, and this is, uh, speaking of that religious intensity, this is an American kind of religious intensity, let us say a 20th century intensity of religion. And it's now about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I can hear the kids running back and forth, and it must have been 150 degrees in that garage. 
And, 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 I, and I knew I, I had figured that I would have the job done by six. I thought I'm going to do it all in one shot, you know, and you're not, not going to go. I'm not going to let it go. It's like a guy going all the way across the desert. He's going to go. He's going to go. Well, I'm working, working, working. I've got this, this rotten valve grinding compound is now under my fingernails. And all my fingernails are broken, by the way, at this point. If you've ever tried to pull valve springs by hand with little picks and stuff trying to pull them, you know what I'm talking about. Well, my, my fingernails are, are ground down. My finger, the, the tips of my fingers hurt. It must be like a, a, a safe grinder, a safe, a safe cracker after 4,000 hours of unsuccessful work. You know, his fingers are ground down and, and my eyes have got grease in them and I'm sweating. And you, you know that, that feeling of being so hot that sweat runs down, runs down your nose. It runs into your mouth. You can taste it. it your, your shirt is now have been long since torn off your back, you know, and your pants are sweating it all the way through and your knees are, are dripping and your shoes are squishing and I'm down in this dark, dank dungeon and if you've ever worked on a, on a, on a V8 car, a Ford V8 it was the worst automobile of all to work on Hardly anything was accessible, believe me. It was fantastic. Doug, it's like digging your way through Mammoth Cave at midnight. And I'm down there grinding the valves. And finally, it gets to be a little bit dark out. And my mother is hollering, Come on in for supper! Come on in! No, Ma! Shut up, will you? I could not stop. I could not stop. I couldn't stop. And, and my kid brother comes out and he looks in and he disappears. He just takes one look and he goes, Boy, he knew, he knew that was, it was on me. Well, Bruner comes over, Junior Bruner comes over, who also had a car, a Model A. Bruner knew what it was like. And about 7 o'clock, we we're both working together on this thing. It is getting darker and darker. Finally, I reach over up on the shelf, and we have one of these extension cords, you know, that go all the way into the house where you plug it in with a big, with a big iron cover, you know, with this cage over it, and I plug this son of a gun in, and now we're working under lights. Oh, is it hot? That light, that light, that insane light hanging there under the hood. The light is shining in my eyes. And the mosquitoes begin to come in. Millions of mosquitoes, and we're in there sweating, and Bruner's working on one side, and I'm working on the other. And about 11 o'clock, we can hear some sounds out in the backyard muttering sounds and grunting and yelling and in through the open doors comes Mr. Bruner drunker than a coot roaring drunk he's on his way home from the roundhouse and it's Saturday night he's been coming home since Wednesday and Bruner's lunch bucket is open and his sandwiches are falling out and he's roaring in and he's dragging clotheslines and he says what are you doing he looks in and he sees and remember he worked in the roundhouse and was a mechanic and he sees what we're doing Bruner comes in head first. He says, you're crying in the valves. He comes in there like that. He says, let me show you. He's drunker than a lord. Drunker than a coot. And both of us sort of back away. Big, drunken Bruner. The only thing he knew how to do, and he, he, he could do it in his sleep, was work on machines. He's drunk. He's working, grinding the valves. What are the clearances? He takes the clearances. He's grinding. He's got the calipers out. He's got the shims out. And about... Five minutes later, he goes, Whoa! he throws up into the motor. He cleans it up, and, he's, and we're both backing away. And we're, it's smelly, and the mosquitoes are roaring. Bruner is heaving into the motor, and he's grinding up like that. I go into the house, and I sit in the kitchen. My father says, what's the matter? I said, Mr. Bruner's grinding the valves. He looks out there, and you can see that great big fatty. Oh, he's grinding the valves, just like that. Two o'clock in the morning, Bruner reels out, falls down his basement steps, and he's asleep. I never had a valve job that was better. Fantastic. Beautiful job. An incident beyond all incidents.